Let's come into God's Word. There are two passages I want us to turn to. Um, the first one is in Hebrews. We kind of did most of it last week, but I left a couple of verses for this week to go with communion. Um, and so we're going to look at them. And so that's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 to 28. And you can turn there in the meantime. We're going to be reading from verse 23, just to put it in context. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 28. And then if you want to look a little bit ahead, you can multitask. We're going to look at Revelation 21, verse 19 to 27, because we're going to come across this again. Revelation 21, verse 19 to 27. So let's go and read from Hebrews now first. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is a capital H, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, here's the so what's, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is you and I, if we are believers. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, capital S, who has, who has been made perfect forever. Fantastic. Now turn to Revelation 21 verse 19. It's a picture of the new Jerusalem. And you, are, you and I feature in that new Jerusalem. You might ask, how? In the form of precious stones. We're going to make that clear as we come through Hebrews now. In the form of precious stones, in the foundations of the new Jerusalem. So, Revelation 21, verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, and eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. For several months now, we've been studying this book of Hebrews. And I hope you've benefited from that as you've 
churned up these ideas, uh, ruminated over them to keep it green, and just thought about these truths that have come home to us. And so we don't know who wrote this book, but we do know that the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, had a very difficult task. And the challenge he had before him was he had to persuade first century Jews to embrace Christianity, to become followers of Jesus Christ. And he also had to encourage those who had become Christians, Jewish believers, to continue to trust Jesus Christ despite their circumstances and not to revert back to Judaism. And here's the problem, you see, because for the Jews, and from their point of view, they already had a perfectly good religion. You see, in Judaism, they had a religion which had already been ordained by God. Judaism came from God in its purest form. It wasn't of man's devising. And yes, the rabbis did add to it as they went. But God gave them that initial commandments and he told them how to worship. And they had initially been promised the forgiveness of God. And it was just a promise of forgiveness. Remember, we've seen that in Hebrews. And he had assured them of God's love. And Judaism had organized their lives publicly and privately through this legal code and through a body of moral laws. And Judaism contained this comprehensive set of rules and regulations that ordered their worship and how they were to get together for religious ceremonies. It provided them with a worldview. It gave them a cosmology, how everything else is created. And it explained where they came from and how the world came into being. And it had great stories and wonderful hymns. And in short, Judaism contained everything you would want in a religion. In a religion. It had antiquity as well because, hey, Christianity is just a small baby on the block to these Jews. They'd been going for many, many years, 13 centuries before Christianity came along. And Judaism was an ancient faith. It wasn't just a recent innovation. And so the author of this book had quite a high bar to clear, to persuade these adherents of the Jewish religion to abandon their faith in which they had been raised, a faith which permeated every single aspect of their lives, their family lives, their social lives, their civic lives, their religious lives. They'd grown up in it from birth. And he had to persuade them to leave that all behind and to embrace Christ as Savior. I'll repeat that again. They had to leave behind the religion and embrace Christ as Savior. So how does he go about it? We're doing a bit of a recap. He doesn't do this by telling them that everything they previously believed and practiced was wrong. Because all they did was just get the gates up. Antagonism. No. This isn't what he did. He did it by telling them the truth. When you tell people the truth, the truth breaks through the barriers. Tell them the truth and they will see the error. He told them the truth. What was the truth? That the religion of the Old Testament was always intended to be temporary. But it was now being replaced in God's sovereign plan for His people by something 
better. That's one of the themes in Hebrews. Something better is here for you. Something which is built on the foundation of ancient Judaism, but which now supplants it. It pushes it aside. But he does this by making four points. And I just want to summarize them real quickly. He says, firstly, and think what we talked about last week. He argues that it wasn't the law of Moses which was wrong in itself, because God gave it to him. But it was ultimately weak and useless and unable to cleanse from sin. And therefore, the law was now being changed. The law couldn't cleanse from sin. It was now being changed. You see, the Old Testament law was appropriate for its era. It was what they needed prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. But it was fundamentally flawed. It was weak and useless. We saw that last week. Why? What was its weakness? The Old Testament covenant and law was powerless against sin. The law couldn't cleanse from sin. The law couldn't erase the guilt of sin. The law couldn't prevent people from continuing to sin. All the law could do was to document all the ways in which they did sin. Secondly, the author of the Hebrews argues that it's not just... It's not that the covenant that God made with Abram is false, but that it was now being superseded by a better covenant. The covenant God made with Abram was very good for its time, but God was now superseding that by a better covenant. It wasn't that God had made a mistake in the past. He was building on what He had done in the past. God was not merely making some minor adjustments to the covenant that he'd given Abraham. He wasn't just altering clause 1b and carrying on from there. No. He wasn't just instituting a new order of priests. He wasn't just altering some of his laws. He wasn't just eliminating animal sacrifice as a worship practice. No. He's fundamentally transforming the nature of his relationship to his people. See, the first one was by law-keeping. Now he was saying it's by relationship. Do you get the difference? The new covenant is one of a relationship. It is far superior to the old, says the writer to the Hebrews. And he does this through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Thirdly, he argues... It's not that their prior hopes were false, but they had now had available to them a better hope. Israel had a hope. God said, if you trust me as your God, I will lead you into the land. I will look after you. I will be your God. You will be my people. They had a hope. It wasn't a false hope. It was a true hope. But this hope they now had available to them was a better hope. Why? Because... This temporary ceremonial cleansing from sin would be replaced by a permanent and actual cleansing from sin. Instead of just looking forward to cleansing from sin, they could now actually be cleansed from sin. And it would be accomplished once and for all. 
And the better hope they had was that they would now be able to draw near to God themselves instead of going through a priest. In the Old Testament, they had to come to God through a priest. He went into the Holy of Holies. They never went into the Holy of Holies. They put a rope around his leg in case God killed him in there so he could get pulled out. They never went into the Holy of Holies. But now, under the new covenant, remember the temple curtain? When Christ rose again from the dead, the temple curtain was torn in two. What did that symbolize? It meant that men and women could now go directly into the very presence of God in his throne room because of Jesus Christ. We have direct access to God. Isn't that a better hope? And fourthly, the author of the Hebrews is arguing not that the Old Testament priesthood was invalid, because it wasn't. It was made for its time. But that it was limited and ultimately powerless. Why? Due to the mortality and sinfulness of the priests themselves. The problem was there was a piggy in the middle. Ooh, that's not a good Jewish one. There was. There was a priest in between them and God. And this priest was sinful. And this priest didn't last forever. This priest died one day. And where's Aaron today? Oh dear, we'd better get another one. He's dead. You see, the Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests all died. And they had to be continually replaced. Not only that, every one of them had sins of their own, and so a better priesthood was necessary, and it was to be administered by a better priest who is Christ Jesus. So we get to what we did last week. We ended last week's passage, if you just look back in chapter 7, we ended that on such a high note. Christ is our intercessor. Consequently, verse 25 he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Wow. So we looked at the priesthood, now the intercessory bit. You see, the Jewish rabbis taught, and Jewish tradition rather taught, that the intercessor ministry was entrusted to angels. And especially to Michael, the archangel. And yet the writer to the Hebrews goes to great lengths to point out that Christ is far superior to the angels as an intercessor. Why? Because Christ intercedes for us meaningfully. For unlike the angels, he has first-hand experience of our trials. You've got an intercessor that knows what it is to go through trials. He was a human being like you and I. Yet he was God. He was a human being. He understood what it was to go through hard times. Didn't he? And so he can intercede for us meaningfully. He intercedes for us compassionately. Because unlike the angels, he knows exactly what we need. That's such a great comfort to me. I think I know what I need. He knows exactly what I need. And He gives me exactly what I need. And therefore, He is the perfect intercessor. Because He goes before the Father and He intercedes for me exactly in the way I need to be interceded for. 
And then he intercedes for us effectively. Why? Because unlike the angels, he has unlimited power to meet my needs and your needs. He has unlimited power to meet our needs. And so the writer to the Hebrews concludes verse 16, It was indeed fitting that we have such a high priest. And then he describes this high priest to us with five adjectives. You know what adjectives are? Come on, English lessons. Descriptive words, all right? They describe something. Here are five words which describe no other human being and no other priest and no other high priest except one. There is no one, if you can find someone else that these five words apply to, then Christ has a competitor. Only one. First word is this. He is holy. Christ is holy. What does that mean? He wears a white collar? Black coat? No. You see, all priests were sinners by nature. Whose fault was that? Adam. We're back in Genesis. All priests were sinners by nature. From the time of Adam, when man sinned, human nature was tainted by sin. Every little baby that's born, sorry Caleb, you're a good little baby, very pretty, but a sinner by nature is born because of Adam. Every single one of us. But Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. Why? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary. Mary was the vehicle in which the Holy Spirit gave birth. His nature was sinless. He is not linked to Adam by nature. You see the difference? And so he's holy. That's what it holy means. It means sinless by nature. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of all that God is and required for holiness. He had 100% separateness to God alone in character. Not a hint of sin. And he was also separate to God alone for the work that he was to do. His mission, mission possible. It is possible for man to come in directly into God's presence. So he was here on a mission and he was holy. He said to Mary's mother when she was looking for him as a little boy, when he got lost, when she thought he'd got lost, sorry, he knew exactly where he was. He said, why do you seek me? I'm about my father's business. Can you see the little boy? John 20 verse 21. He said, just as my father sent me on my mission, so I am sending you. And therefore, believers... Those of us who are unholy sinners by nature, he says, I am making you holy by nature, and I am sending you on the same mission, mission possible. Woo! Do you feel that you've got something to do now? We are sent by Jesus. We are made holy and sent on this mission because he is holy and he was sent on his mission. Holy to God. Secondly, there's this word blameless, and it's got to do with deeds. It's deeds. Blameless. He was innocent. He was without any evil. 
no one could accuse him of any moral defection throughout his life and of any corruption at all. Unlike us, he didn't lose his temper. He wasn't overcome by lust. He didn't give in to greed. He didn't become selfish. He wasn't filled with pride. He was blameless. It's to do with deeds. There's another adjective. He was unstained. This one's got to do with a sacrifice. As a sacrifice, he was unstained. Literally, the word is uncontaminated. He was perfectly pure. Even in his contacts with sinful mankind and with mankind's sin, he remained uncontaminated. No other man could say that. Fourthly, he was separated from sinners. Now that sounds kind of wrong in the, in the first instance. He was separated from sinners. You see, the Levit Levitical high priests, before the Day of Atonement comes, seven days before, the Levitical high priest had to go and isolate himself. He had to go in complete isolation, not come into any other contact with anyone else. He had to watch what he was eating and drinking. Why? Because he had to remain separate and holy for the mission which he was about to fulfill. Of going into the Holy of Holies. So he had to separate himself and stay ritually undefiled. But you see, in contrast, Christ's sinless character always sets him apart from all other men and from sinners. He was never compromised, he was always separated from sinners. And then, fifthly, he is exalted above the heavens. Wow. We've been singing about that this morning. You see, it describes his present position. He's eternally glorious and he's lifted up in his, this position and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Just go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews, the first few verses. Let's read it again. Verses 3 to 4 of chapter 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you see the exalted Christ in your mind's eye? And so he is the one who is being spoken about here. The only one who can be described by these five adjectives. Now let's summarize as I finish up. This high priest, the high priest on earth had to offer daily sacrifices for his own, own sin. And even for the sins that he made when he wasn't even thinking about it. His inadvertent sin. But Christ is perfect. Christ has no need for daily sacrifice for Himself. What about you and I? Have you been through a sinless day before? Have you been through a sinless hour before? What about two minutes? Sinless two minutes? Come on! What about a minute? I'm doing like Abraham now. What about Lot and his people? No, different story. What about half a minute? Sinlessness. So does Christ have to keep on sacrificing for every half second that we 
sin before him and sin and sin. No, why? Because he himself was the once for all sacrifice. He died so that for those milliseconds that we sin and those are all accounted for. Praise the Lord for that. Because I know how much forgiveness I need on a daily basis. But I'm sure you're just fine. He cried, it is finished on the cross. Sin had been paid for, your sin and mine. I want you to see a picture. I want to finish this time together with a picture. I want you to see the Old Testament high priest wearing his full regalia. And I'm sorry, I couldn't find anyone to show you this. I had to go to some art pictures. But he wore a very important piece of equipment on his body. He wore an ephod. An ephod consisted of straps on the shoulders and then this breastplate with all these jewels encrusted on it. And on the shoulder straps were two onyx stones. And each of these onyx stones was inscribed with the names of six of the tribes of Israel. So six on the left, six on the right. Twelve tribes, if you do your maths, the nation of Israel. Guess why we read Hebrews? Oh, sorry, guess why we read Revelation 21? And then the breastplate consisted of twelve more precious stones. And again, they represented the twelve tribes. So why did they do this twice? Was it to... Because God might not see the one half and then he'd see the other half. No, there was a reason for it. Twelve tribes on the shoulders was symbolizing the strength. Strength. I bear you up on my shoulders. Strength. Twelve tribes on the heart is the love. High priest would go into the presence of Almighty God through that temple curtain. Once a year. And with him, he would take the 12 tribes of Israel. Strength and love. There's much more to that. But, but the problem was that this represented what the priesthood was to be. The priest who was bearing these things was to have a heart for the people. And he had to have the strength to bring them to God. And the problem was many of these priests no doubt had a heart for the people. But none of them was able to bring the, the actual people to God. He had to go in their place. And bring them with him. He could not bring the people in themselves. But our high priest has no such weakness. He carries our names on his heart. We are the jewels on his heart. And he carries you and I on his shoulders. He hasn't forgotten about us. And he, the one who is our high priest, but the one who is God, doesn't need any of these symbols because he has true affection and love for us. 
He has true salvation available to us. He has saved us. And He bears us. And He who is God bears us into the very presence of God. He takes us there. We come into the very presence of God. He perfectly loves us. He perfectly saved us. He is able. Amen? There's one, two. Okay. What's the implication? I'm going to come back to last week. What's the implication? It's what the Hebrew writer was trying to say to these Jews. What's the implication? Why would you have anyone or anything else than this Savior? And that's the implication I come to with you today as well and me. Why would we have any other Savior? The one who is mighty, is able, and willing to save. We saw last week. He's God. Bringing us to God. Who else would we come by? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the Savior above anyone else. You are Christ Jesus, our Lord. You bear us on your shoulders. You love us with true love. And you bring us into the very throne room of heaven. And one day this all becomes reality when we will see our Savior with our very own eyes. Why? Because you have made it possible. And you have brought us there as well. You go ahead of us. We come behind, and you will bring us to our Father. Thank you that positionally before you, we are already made right with God. Help us now, Lord, as you help us in everyday life to be made like Jesus, to be sanctified, made holy, so that we too, like Jesus, can be perfect. Thank you for this great work of grace that is here on display and that you are doing in us. We praise your holy name. Amen.